So I'm going to read for you uh, these verses aloud, and then uh, we'll kind of walk through them and try to get at the, the heart of what, uh, what God is communicating to us, uh, to his people through these verses. So let me read for you verses 8 through 13. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That is the text that we will uh, look at today. And I'm, I would call this, uh, this message or sort of the theme of these verses, the blessing of goodness, the blessing of goodness. So we start, the first thing you observe in this text is the word finally. And that signals to you, of course, uh, that there was stuff that came before this, right? What does finally mean? Well, it seems to indicate that he's been making a list of sorts, and he's come to the last in a list. And so just as a little refresher, it's been a couple of weeks since we've actually been in First Peter together. Um, and so let me just refresh your memory a bit. Uh, back in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, uh, Peter began to urge the church to live in a holy way for the sake of their witness in the world. Chapter 2, verse 11 said, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so that's the umbrella over these verses that we've been covering for the past uh, several uh, messages. And so it's honorable conduct among the Gentiles, that is, in the world, in a hostile world, among those who do not believe the word and follow Christ. And then he began to go through a list of particular sort of subsets of Christians in the various social and relational settings where they might find themselves. And again, he addressed the sort of less privileged or less powerful uh, of those sort of groupings. And so he began in chapter 2, verse 13, speaking to Christians broadly and how they relate to the government. And so he exhorted Christians to, for the Lord's sake, out of fear of God, be subject to human government, right? Down in verse 18, he addressed slaves. So Christians who were slaves, he said to obey to be subject to your masters, not just the good ones, but even the unjust ones, not out of fear of the masters, but out of fear of God. So for fear of God, live in a submissive, obedient, respectful way under uh, the, 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 the masters that they found themselves with. Chapter three, verses one through six, he addressed wives, 
Christian wives, he says, be subject to your own husbands. And we found in, in that passage that he says, even those who don't obey the word, that is those who are not Christians, those who do not believe the gospel and trust in Christ. Um, and so again, there's a, a group of Christians in the more vulnerable position. He says, submit to your husbands. And then verse seven, husbands, honor your wives, right? That was the, the, the theme, the sort of overall message of verse seven, where he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. What that looks like is showing honor to them. Um, and so, the, so he's addressed these kind of various groups. So now when he gets to verse eight, he's letting us know, okay, the list is coming to an end, right? Uh, this is finally, this is, this is the end of these sort of lists of people that I'm addressing. And it's not a particular group, is it? It's all of you. Finally, all of you. So in other words, this is the whole church community. So the people that he's writing to, believers in Jesus in this, in, in the area of Asia Minor, in a largely hostile and an increasingly hostile world. So all of you as Christians, as the church, and then he gives these commands. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And I would suggest, if you want to look at each one of these things, unity and sympathy and brotherly love and tenderness of heart and humility in our the way that we view others and ourselves. I would suggest that all of these things are characteristics of the new birth. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, Peter had, had uh, told us that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so, and that echoes what he said back in chapter 1, verse 3, that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so this new birth is the life of Christ, right? It's the life of God in our souls, in our lives coming forth, right? In the Christian community, we are living out the life of Christ. That's really what that means. And so if you think about each of these things, unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and tenderness of heart and humility. Those really are the characteristics of Christ, aren't they? And these are the kinds of things that if we are following Jesus faithfully, um, we're going to live these things out. And these are all um, internal uh, uh, qualities and relationships. So I think verse eight really has to do with how the church community should be and relate to one another within the church. And you could say at, at the local level, within a, a local church where there's been a particular commitment made to these particular believers, um, that that's probably the most um, powerful and obvious and clear context for these things to be lived out. But I think there's an overarching value across the universal body of Christ as well, that we ought to, wherever it's possible, as much as we can, to live in unity and, and in love with uh, other people who profess Christ, right? Other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Okay, now I got to show you something cool here. Um, these these uh, characteristics right here, we got kind of five adjectives, right? Uh, be like this, united, sympathetic, uh, having brotherly love, tender heart, et cetera. These things form 
um, what um, Bible people like to call a chiasm. All right, that sound, that's a funny sounding word, but, but here, here's what it means. It's sort of a pattern. I'm gonna write down here in this blank space. It's sort of a pattern. No, let me change my color. It's a pattern where the text has a shape, kind of like this. So for example, the first thing he says, all of you have unity of mind. I'm gonna put this here like so, unity of mind. Then he says, have sympathy, right? What is, what is sympathy? That's, that's really sort of feeling someone else's burdens, right? Feeling along with someone else as they're suffering and, and experiencing sorrow, right? So it could be linked to uh, compassion. And in fact, I think some English translations actually use the word compassion there. Um, and then he says down there, uh, then the third thing he says is brotherly love, right? That echoes back to something he told us in chapter one, when he was speaking about the life of the, the people of God, right? He said the very same thing, uh, have, uh, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So that echoes back to uh, that verse uh, in the middle of chapter one. So then the fourth characteristic that he mentions is, I'll say, oops, I need to add that. I'll say tenderness, tenderness of heart, softness of heart toward one another, right? We're, we're, we're movable, right? We're not impassive. We're not, uh, uh, you know, stones and, and indifferent to other people and their suffering. We're soft hearted toward them. We, we, we feel with them. We, we love them. And then the final thing uh, is humility, right? A humble mind. So if you notice that this structure, you can see some uh, characteristics that, that match, seem to match between um, these various things. So if you see unity and humility, those seem pretty closely uh, related to one another. In fact, one is not possible without the other, right? If we're, if we're going to be united with each other, it's going to take I got to pay attention to what the other people in my church and my community uh, think, feel, believe, um, how they live, right? So this humility and this unity are very closely linked with one another. And then if you look at these next ones, this, the sympathy and the tenderness, well, those seem very similar to each other as well, don't they? Really, they could both be summarized with the word compassion. We should have hearts that are open toward one another and toward the, the suffering and feelings and hopes and fears and needs of other people in our church community, right? We should feel those things with one another, which all leads to, or maybe is summarized by what we see here, brotherly love, right? And so this chiastic structure emphasizes what's in the middle of it. If you draw out the shape like that, you can see all of these things are aiming at and flowing out from what's in the middle, which is love, brotherly love. So all of verse eight is really summarized by uh, love one another, right? Um, love one another. Love one another with a pure heart. Love one another with a sincere brotherly affection and warmth for one another, okay? So, and the very presence of these exhortations, by the way, uh, is a reminder that we need them, right? 
if these things came naturally to us, if we were all naturally inclined to consider others above ourselves, naturally inclined to, uh, to be more interested in someone else's pain than in my own comfort, um, then we wouldn't need reminders like this and exhortations like this, right? The, the New Testament wouldn't need to say to us over and over of each other, be humble, consider one another, right? Uh, be united. <laughs> if we were naturally united, he wouldn't have to tell us over and over to get united, right? And so this is just a reminder to us that in our sin and in our, uh, our, our brokenness, these things cut against the grain of all of our instincts, don't they? Our instincts are self-preserving, self-interested. And so this is not our life. This is the life of God, right? Because we've been born again to a living hope, because we've been born again by the imperishable seed of the word of God, we live out his life now. And so these are the characteristics of the life of Christ within uh, the, the faith community. So this is true of all of us, no matter what the situation that we're in. Now, there seems to be a shift between verses 8 and 9 in terms of his, uh, the, maybe the, not the audience, because he's speaking to the same group, but the, the recipients of the behaviors that he exhorts us to. So in verse 8, it's all inside the church. This, we should love each other. We should be united with each other. We should be tenderhearted toward each other, etc. And now it seems that he begins to kind of go back to um, the world around us. And then that's the umbrella for this whole section is keep your honor, your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Right. And so when he starts to speak in verse nine of, of re, not repaying evil for evil, it seems that he's focusing on the evil and the reviling that may come to us from the outside, right. From those who aren't in Christ, for those who don't share uh, our faith uh, and our values, etc. Okay. And so they have not uh, obeyed the, the gospel, obeyed the word of God, as Peter uh, might say. And so now it's the church as it relates to the outside world. And there's, again, there's a, there's a big, simple contrast that he starts to work out here. And it would be the simple contrast between evil and good. Between evil and good. So... The structure of it um, is very simple. It's don't be like this, be like this, right? Don't pursue evil, pursue good. And so he begins to flesh that out. Do not repay evil for evil. That is when we are the recipients of evil from someone else, when we've been made the target of uh, somebody's insult or uh or even more sort of harmful actions we, we were the recipients of evil peter exhorts christians don't repay evil with more evil don't fight fire with fire as it were that's again our instincts our instincts are i'm gonna fight back in the very same way right if you're gonna if you've got bad things to say about me well guess what i can say uh probably even worse things about you and maybe uh, some of us even take uh, pride and pleasure in uh, the, the, the creativity and the clarity and the sort of pointedness with which we might be able to repay, right? Uh, if you got evil for me, guess what? I got evil for you too. Um, same thing here with reviling for reviling. What is reviling? This has to do with speech, particularly. This has to do with, with insult, with somebody speaking ill 
of us. So when you are spoken ill of, when you are reviled, don't revile in return, right? So I'm going to underline these guys in red for us, the, the evil for evil, the reviling for reviling. I don't know why red gets such a bad rap. I'm sorry, red, you're a beautiful color. Um, but nevertheless, you're always associated with bad things. So, um, and I'm going to perpetuate that by using red for my evil color. All right. So don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. If you're insulted, your instinct is going to be, I'm going to insult you right back. But don't, Peter says, don't do this. Don't insult for insult. Right. Um, that, that is not to what we've been called to, which you'll speak of in just a minute. On the contrary, oh, here comes our, here comes our contrast. On the contrary, bless, bless, bless. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling, but bless. Bless whom? Um, I think the context would suggest bless the very people who are doing evil to you and who are reviling you, the ones who are insulting you and, and seeking your harm. Bless them. Does that remind you of something? I wonder if you have maybe the words of Jesus echoing in your mind a bit here. Luke chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. That is, that is the mindset that a follower of Jesus is to have in a hostile world, not one of I can fight back even better because I got God on my side. No, it's one that does not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but we repay evil and reviling with blessing, with blessing. That, that's what we should do. Um, what sort of blessing does Peter have in mind? Um, Tom Schreiner says of this, Peter means that believers are to ask God to show his favor and grace upon those who have conferred injury upon them. So prayer is at least one key way that we bless others. Instead of secretly wishing for their um, misfortune, for things to go badly for them, or for them to really um, you know, get repaid what they deserve, we should pray that God would grant them favor, that God would bring grace to them. And ultimately, if we're talking about the relationship between Christians and non-Christians, the church and the world, the ultimate blessing that you could pray for them would be that God would save them, right? That God would open their eyes to their sin and their need for a Savior and help them to see the beauty of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners, that they might place their faith in him. So that's the best thing you could possibly pray for somebody who doesn't know Christ and who has been uh, a, a nuisance, right? Who is uh, giving, bringing evil and reviling into your lives. Bless them and do not curse. For to this you were called. I think that this looks backward at, um, at this manner of life. And probably even back to chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling, but bless them because you were called to this kind of life. You were called to love and unity and sympathy and humility and tenderness. And you're called to be honorable, even among the hostile world. 
That's what you've been called to. And the result of all of that, right, the, the, the upshot, if you will, of all of this uh, blessing instead of cursing is that you may obtain a blessing. And this blessing, I believe, is nothing less than the eternal life, the imperishable inheritance that Peter has been celebrating and reminding us of and pointing us toward throughout this letter. When he says that you may obtain a blessing, I don't think he just means that it will feel good to bless somebody else. That might be true. I think there's a certain sense in which when we do good to others, we do feel a kind of reward, a kind of, I did the right thing. And, um, and that's, a, that's an affirming, kind of clear conscience kind of a feeling. But I don't think that's what he means. I think he means our eternal inheritance that God is keeping for us uh, is, uh, is going to come if we will live according to these measures, right? If we will live with one another in these understanding humble ways and will live among a hostile world not repaying evil for evil and insult for insult, but with blessing. It seems clearly linked to me that the blessing here is eternal life. If Christians will follow Christ's example and bless others, seeking their good, even when they seek our harm, then they will receive the reward of eternal salvation. Now, don't be mistaken. Peter is not regressing to some kind of a works righteousness here, a works salvation. If you live the right way, then God will save you. That's not exactly what he's doing. Uh, he's already, because let me just remind you what he's championed and affirmed and pointed us to. He's already told us that God has brought about our new birth. Chapter 1, verse 3. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Chapter 1, verse 23, we have been born again by the imperishable seed of the word of God, right? He's given us new birth. He tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, that he himself is keeping our inheritance secure, right? You have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is safeguarded by God in heaven. And verse 5, that tell, tells us that God himself is guarding and preserving us through faith, right? Uh, be, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so I, I think it helps here to think about the, uh, the tenses of salvation. It's very natural and easy for us to think about the past tense. We've been saved. We are saved. And that means that something already happened in the past and that reality is settled. But the New Testament and Peter specifically speaks of three different tenses of salvation. We, we remember, we look backward at Christ's death and resurrection, and we see that that has saved us, right? His death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection to defeat death, we have been saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. Then there's a present tense reality. As Christ's spirit works in us, sanctifying us, he is saving us. Right? So we're still in the process of being saved. And then there's a future tense. At Christ's return, he will save us from the wrath of God. Right? And he's pointed us to that over and over in this letter. So if you think about past tense, present tense, and future tense of salvation, 
this shouldn't confuse us at all in terms of what is the grounds of our salvation. The grounds of our salvation is the finished work of Christ, period. He lived obediently on our behalf. He died in our place. He rose from the dead to defeat death and hell forever. And so when we are united to him by faith, what's his is ours. And because of what he has accomplished, he has begun a work in us that he will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Find that in, in Philippians chapter one as well. And so we are in this process then of being saved. And so I think that's what he's getting at when he says, bless instead of cursing that, that is so that you may obtain a blessing. In other words, if we are living out, right? If we are working out the salvation that's already been accomplished and already been purchased for us by Christ and rendered complete, then we will, um, we will uh, receive this reward, all right? And that just points to the reality that, um, you know, there, there's a, a tendency, I think, among evangelical Christians who love, rightly, the simplicity of the gospel, repent of your sins, trust in Christ, you'll be saved, it's beautifully simple, and it's true. But in our emphasis on the simplicity of it, we can have a very, uh, an over-simplistic view that says, well, if I made a decision at some point in my life that I believe that that was true, maybe I walked an aisle at a church where a preacher said, come forward. Maybe I got baptized. Maybe I checked the card that said, yes, I want to become a Christian. Well, if I did that sometime in the past, then I am good to go, and it doesn't matter what happens now. I think Peter points us again to the reality that the manner, the means of final salvation is the perseverance in faith of Christians. And God himself is the one that does that. He is the one that, per, that preserves us by keeping us in the faith that we might continue trusting him and living out the life of Christ in our churches and in our communities. So the, what he does in the rest of these verses, uh, verses 10 through uh, 12, uh, and really 13 is just kind of a summary statement of it, um, is just kind of, he quotes at length from Psalm 34. I'll go ahead and write this in here just so you know, you can see that that's what it's from. Psalm 34, I think it's verses 12 through 16, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he quotes at length from Psalm 34 just to express this reality, to express the truth that um, when we turn away from evil, turn away from insulting, and we focus on blessing and goodness, right? The, the, the unity, the love, the sympathy, the humility, that it brings God's blessing. He just quotes this psalm at length to show that that is exactly um, what is happening and has been that way from the beginning. So, so let's Let's look at these verses, and I'm going to underline some things for you in my blue and red. Blue being good, and red being bad, right? All right, so whoever desires to love life, oops, I'm moving things around instead of drawing. Whoever desires to love life, why is it still doing that? Here we go. Love life, and to see good days. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we just want to live good life, right? Whoever desires to like just have a ball on earth, have this great old time living it up, I don't think that's what it means. I think, and because again, Peter is using it this way to summarize his, his argument, I think the, the, the life that we're loving and the good days that we're enjoying are 
the very same thing as this eternal blessing. I think he's got eternal life on his mind. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, that is to receive eternal life, let him keep his tongue from evil. Uh-oh, we've got an evil tongue going on. And his lips from speaking deceit. That's telling lies. We should not try to trick others or be untruthful with them. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That is a really bad underlining, but you know what I'm trying to do. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now let's walk back through that, those verses and underline the other stuff, right? So, whoever wants to receive the blessing of eternal life, right? The good days of life with God forever, let him keep his tongue from evil. So, well, that sounds a bit like what he said up in verse 9, right? Don't repay evil for evil. All right. Yeah, don't speak evil. And let him keep his lips from speaking deceit, right? We're not lying. We're being truthful. We're being honest and authentic, all right? So we're keeping our tongues from evil. We're keeping our lips from speaking deceit. We're not doing evil. We're turning away from evil. And not just in a passive, I have stopped doing evil things, but an active doing good, right? Uh, there, there is good that we are to do, not just stop doing evil stuff, but also do good actively, intentionally. And there's some more active verbs. Seek peace, pursue it, right? We seek, we pursue. Those things take effort and intentionality, don't they? We seek the things that bring peace with one another, with the outside world when it's possible. Reminded of Paul saying to the Romans, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, right? Seek peace, pursue it. Why? Okay. We want to see good days, right? We want this eternal life blessing. So here's what you got to do. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. For, all right, he's grounding again. This is why you want to do this. Look at this. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What does that mean? He sees us, right? He pays attention to us. He is mindful of us. And not in a... Uh, in a negative way, like he's looking out for us to do something wrong so that he can smite us. No, he's looking to bless us. He cares for us. And his ears are open to their prayer. The ones who are living according to his word, right, are living out the character of Christ in our relationships with each other and even how we respond to evil and insult in the world this will bring about the reality that God has his eyes on us to bless us and his ears are open to us that he might hear our prayers and come to our aid. That is really good news. And friends, let me just remind you, that is our reality in Christ. For those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, repented of sin, recognized the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his risen life as the means by which we are sanctified and saved and justified before God, this is our reality, right? 
The eyes of the Lord are on his people. The ears of the Lord are open to his reality. We sang earlier in uh, Praise the Lord the Almighty, a line that says, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. And really, that's what the gospel is. The gospel reminds us that because of what Christ accomplished in his life and death and resurrection, God has befriended you. You are his friend now. And because you're his friend, his eyes are on you to bless you, and his ears are open to your prayer. But, oh, let this be a warning. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And in the context of eternal life, eternal blessing, eternal reward, what does it mean that God is against those who do evil? This is judgment. This is eternal destruction. This is the contrast between life and destruction, salvation and destruction, life and death, right? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, do all these things. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking to see. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue peace because the eyes of the Lord are on you. But if you don't, if you are the one that's uh, dishing out evil and that's dishing out lies and hypocrisy and is, is doing evil deeds, well, guess what? The Lord is against you. You stand under the just wrath and condemnation of God if that is where you live. That is a dangerous place to be. If anyone is hearing this right now and you're not sure that you're in this safe place where the Lord is, uh, his eyes are on you to bless you and his ears are open to your prayer, turn to him now. Turn to him in faith. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. You paid the price for my sin and I want to live your life. I want your life in me. So forgive me. Come into my life now so that this does not become your reality. The Lord is against you. So then in verse 13, um, the upshot of all this uh, is he kind of gives this statement at the end. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, if this is merely like a rhetorical device that Peter is using, um, it falls entirely flat. Because remember that Peter is writing to people who are suffering currently, right? As they're reading this letter, they are undergoing hardship and they're receiving evil and insult and, and difficulty because of their faith in Christ. And so if he's saying, hey, if you do the right things, no one's going to give you a hard time, then that would fall completely flat and, and ring totally untrue. That, that's not what Peter is doing here. Um, because they might say, what do you mean, who is there to harm me? How about all of the people who are currently harming us? You know, all the people who are against us. Those would be the ones that harm us if we're zealous for good. Um, but again, this is not what he's doing. And he's well aware, of course, that that is the case. He's been speaking of their suffering from the beginning, calling them exiles, knowing, reminding them that they don't belong here and the world doesn't welcome them. And he's about to launch in verse 14 into a few verses that specifically address, okay, but even if you do suffer, <laughs> Even if your uh, zealousness, your zeal for good and for righteousness does bring about suffering, here's how to handle it, right? Um, so he knows that that is the case. What he's doing here is asking the question with a much broader perspective. If a Christian is zealous for good, if a Christian is living out the life of God in his soul and God's blessing is in his life through the watchful care and the attentive ear of God to his prayer, then who can do him ultimate harm, right? Who could finally do anything that will ultimately harm or destroy 
the follower of Jesus. I think he's, again, putting our eyes on the final reward and reality of eternal life that's coming. Think of uh, that line in uh, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's how that hymn ends, with a reminder that even the worst thing that can possibly happen to us, right, in this world, with somebody doing evil against us because of our faith, even if our mortal bodies are harmed and destroyed, our eternal souls are secure in Christ. The imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance of the saints is being safeguarded for you in heaven. So the absolute worst evil that could possibly befall you in this life can only serve to speed your journey to glory. That's the, that's the worst that it can do, right? The worst thing we can imagine happening to us can just usher us more quickly into the presence of God in glory. Um, so again, he's saying, what is there to worry about, right? Paul might say, like in Romans 8, verses 34 and, and, and following, who can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, right? We're his. We belong to him. He's chosen us. He's saved us. He's sanctifying us. He will surely save us from the wrath of God. Well, let's, let me wrap this up, uh, this portion of, of the, our time up by just asking you this. Who does all this sound like? All of this, humility, unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderness, humility, the not returning evil for evil, not returning insult for insult, but instead actively blessing those who were cursing him. Who does all of this sound like? I hope it reminds you of the Lord Jesus because he exemplified all of this perfectly. He did not retaliate against evil. And of course, Peter himself reminded us of that back in chapter 2. Verse 23, when he said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ's example is still in the mind's eye, of course, of the readers of this letter. We've had a few weeks since we've looked at it, so maybe we've forgotten it. But if we had been reading this letter in succession, that example of Christ would have been readily in our minds. So when we're reading through these verses, we're going... This is exactly what Jesus did for us. This is what Jesus did, not merely to set an example for us, but to make it possible that we could live this out as well. Not perfectly, but increasingly as our days go by. The only reason we have any hope of carrying out these commands, which cut against the grain of all of our instincts and nature, is because Christ not only provided us an example but he purchased our atonement. If you fast forward just a little bit to verse 18 of chapter three, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, All right? So Christ suffered in our place for our sake that he might bring us to God. And in bringing us to God, he has given us the strength, the power, the, the life of Christ within us that we need to begin carrying these things out more and more as the days go by. 
And so we see in all of this, the blessing of goodness. What is it? If we're committed and striving for the goodness of the, the community life of the church of Jesus Christ and the goodness of not repaying evil for evil, but, but blessing those who harm us and insult us. And, and we, we keep our tongues from evil and we turn away from evil and we're doing good. The blessing that comes is the eternal salvation of God's people. Right? He is saving us even now through all of these, uh, these actions that he might bring us to himself for eternity. So the blessing of goodness is the blessing of eternal salvation in Christ.